0: The What to Know podcast explores best practices, innovation, and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you, the listener, stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape. Hello, this is Blair Claus, Senior Marketing Manager of W2O and the producer of the What to Know podcast. We're taking a summer break this week, and I'm subbing in for our host, Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O, to look back at the nearly 80 episodes we've published and pinpoint some of my favorites. Thank you to all of our listeners. I hope this is a fun episode for you to reflect on as well. And perhaps some of my favorites are yours as well. And for the new listeners, I hope this provides a good snapshot for you should you want to go back and listen to any of our full sessions. The first episode I want to highlight is the one that truly stands out the most for me, and that's with retired Colonel Bill Reeder of the U.S. Army. He's an author, leadership consultant, and was one of the last, if not the last, prisoner of war during Vietnam. And he shared this remarkable journey of how he went through such horrific conditions but he attributes his survival and resilience to his positive attitude.
1: Attitude was at the core of my survival. Uh, I've always been a positive person. I'm not sure why. I had a somewhat troubled youth, but I've still I've been a positive person my whole life. In captivity, I maintained that positive attitude. Uh, the other American that was with me did not. He, he had a, uh, a, a negative attitude on, on a lot of things and would see the worst when I'd see the best. We'd be uh, hiking up the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, on this forced march, and I'd just make some stupid joke. at the. Uh, you know, in fact, the the last, uh, the last item on my survival steps as a, as a prisoner of war is maintain a sense of humor. And sometimes my sense of humor is a bit sick, but I'd come up with these stupid jokes, and Wayne would just scowl at me. Uh, But in the end, that attitude helped bring me through, and that attitude, I think, was part of him not being able to survive.
0: Next up is Kumala Maud, who's the CEO of Copia. She is quite an impressive and inspirational woman. She's the recipient of the Nelson Mandela Humanitarian Award and Toyota's Mother of Invention. She joined us at South by Southwest on a panel to describe what she calls the world's dumbest problem, the hunger crisis. She shared that over 365 million pounds of perfectly edible food is wasted every day, which just astounded me. And she actually took the initiative to try to fix this problem locally on her college campus. And from there, it evolved into the Copia app. It connects businesses with excess food with organizations um, and individuals that actually need it. So I think this was really inspirational to listen to. So here's her description of Copia's capabilities and how she's leveraging technology to in food waste.
1: And I just
2: remember thinking, gosh, how much more effective, how much more efficient this would be if those who have food could say, hey, we have food, and those in need of food could say, hey, we could use that food, and we match these two people, clear the marketplace, and solve a real problem for both of them. And so that's what we, you know, went off to build and at first it was like Tinder for sandwiches. Um, and now it's much more robust and it's basically we've created a technology platform and on one side of the marketplace, it's nonprofits and they create essentially dating profiles. They'll say, you know, this is who we are. This is the kind of food we can accept this day, this time, this kind of quantity, this is our refrigeration capacity. And they can store these profiles into, you know, the cloud and On the other side, businesses, so our customers are, you know, hospitals, universities, corporate cafeterias, restaurant groups, um, stadiums, arenas, uh, hotels, they request pickups of their excess food and, you know, they'll input what kind of food they have and what quantity, which, and whenever they hit, like, I'm ready for pickup, it'll automatically dispatch a driver to go pick up that food, directly drop it off to a nonprofit. The nonprofit signs a tax deduction receipt. So, you know, these businesses can get a a full deduction for, you know, giving food they would have otherwise thrown away. And they'll also send back photos and testimonials of the people that were fed. So you get to see the impact that you made by spending just a few minutes of your time essentially going copia. The
0: next guest is Rajiv Vinkaya, who's the president of Takeda Pharmaceuticals and on the global vaccine business team. And this conversation was particularly interesting because he touched on a range of topics in public health from infectious diseases to the impact of your diet, vaccines, and what he envisions for the future of each of those things. In this next clip, he touches on the role that data plays on public health and how organizations can break through the noise, especially as they look to the future.
3: So I think that whenever we think about um, big data as it relates to healthcare, this is one of the, the significant challenges that we have is how to um, develop tools to be able to effectively analyze that data. Now I think that machine learning and eventually artificial intelligence will play an important role. Right now, there is a lot of hype around these terms. And I think many people throw them around without really understanding um, what, what they mean or using the same definition at least. Um, but I do think over time we will get much more sophisticated at identifying patterns and determining which patterns are actually important and then taking action. I also think that um, the opportunity, that, that big data provides a huge opportunity in personalized medicine because as we uh, learn more and more about patterns, that, uh, patterns of disease, as they relate to say a person's genetic makeup, that will help us to understand biology better. As we understand biology better, we will understand that there are targeted ways to address uh, problems that we didn't realize in the past. A good example is oncology, immunotherapy. Um, We are now moving into an arena where we're going to be able to really target the type of cancer that an individual has and and be effective in, in treating them.
0: Next, we have Dr. Victoria Romero, who's the chief scientist at Next Century Corporation. And here she's doing some very important work countering influence messaging from terror organizations that target youth and teens. In this next clip, she describes cognitive psychology and the development of the adolescent brain and how she leverages that data to try to combat these groups that are using fear-based marketing um, to recruit youth into extremism and terrorism
4: what we know is that the way that the adolescent brain develops the logic parts of your brain absolutely are developing and they're actually developing quite well and they're and, and they're pretty near their peak by the end of adolescence um, but what is not near its peak is the part of your brain that regulates emotion the part of your brain that regulates self-control um, And what is at its peak is the part of your brain that cares most about peer opinion and peer affiliation and is highly attracted to risk and short-term reward. So it's not that adolescents are not logical, and it's not that they don't understand the pros and cons and the risks, it's that those things are not as important to them as as risk and impressing their peers and having adventures and separating themselves from their parents. sometimes i worry a little bit when i see efforts to market to or to persuade adolescents that are fear-based or based on explaining risks or logic i mean even something as simple as telling them why not to smoke honestly if you know what their brain is like that just isn't likely to be the way to go for most of them of course every kid's different there will be exceptions but for the most part it won't be effective and in some cases it's going to actually backfire and be attractive and so When you look at the way I'm gonna start the talk tomorrow is showing the pictures of six teenage um, girls from Western countries who left their comfortable middle-class homes to be ISIS foreign fighters. That is really hard to get your head around if you're thinking about why would they do that? They know how they treat women. Why would they leave their families? But on the other hand, if you think about the peer influence and the attraction to risk and the need to identify and have a group, It makes a little bit more sense, and I think that just needs to be considered when you think about how to counter this temptation.
0: So this next guest, I believe, is our youngest guest, yet he has already made such an impact on society and is truly a champion for giving back. And he is Adam Klein, who was actually the winner of the TV show Survivor a few seasons ago. I believe the millennials first Gen X season. Um, he's also a motivational speaker and an advocate for lung cancer research. Um, and I think he was just so admirable because he won the TV show at this. And at that same time, his mom passed away from lung cancer, even though she had never smoked and she lived a very healthy life. So he utilized his platform and visibility to raise awareness for lung cancer research in honor of his mom and he also has even managed a homeless shelter so he is quite an admirable guy so listen in on his perspective on how he leveraged his platform for good
3: I come back from Survivor and I know that a few months later, not only my story, but the story of my family and my mom would be told on national television. And so in those moments, you know, you you sort of have an opportunity to to, to make something out of it or to sit on your hands. Uh, And I knew that if people were gonna be hearing about my mom, that we should dedicate that visibility towards something meaningful.
0: Here we have Seema Kumar, who's the VP of Innovation, Global Health, and Policy Communication at Johnson & Johnson. And in her episode, she put a spotlight on how science sometimes lives in this nebulous space of the mad scientist or becomes stereotyped as where the quote-unquote nerd studies. Um, But she talked about ways that her and her team are working to make science more relatable and and break down these stereotypes since science and studies of STEM will become increasingly more important. Um, So here in this clip, she shares primary mechanisms for delivering positive spotlight on science and the important role it's increasingly playing in society.
5: Yeah, we've started off now with social media um and trying to sort of talk about science that happens it's not just within our own walls but science that happens everywhere Um, to bring back the uh, awe the uh, wonder uh, the enchantment around science back but also to um, indicate how much uh, science is bringing to society from a value perspective so we have three pillars and most of it's around storytelling so the more you can tell stories about science Uh, the more you can engage with the public um, in relatable ways, the more uh, science becomes something that is, um, you know, human. The second thing is we want to inspire the next generation into science. So we are trying to put in programs in place to showcase the younger generation, uh, to inspire others to come into science careers, and then, of course, by showcasing the impact that it has on society. Because not a day goes by so from the time you wake up till the time you go to sleep, science and technology impact your lives in so many different ways. Here we have Kim Hunter who's the CEO and founder of the Legrant
0: Foundation, Legrant Communications and TLF Associates. Um, here he expands on his passion for education and the importance of being a lifelong student, um, especially utilizing that critical thinking component in all aspects of our lives.
6: But I always tell people education was the centerpiece of who I am, hence the reason why um, I make that the signature for everything else. Because I always believe that if you educate a human being, they give you things in life that allows you to question that critical thinking component and ask questions in the marketplace, regardless of what political affiliation, what your gender, what your ethnic group, it allows you to think. And so for me, education is the fundamentals of who I am.
0: In this next clip, he emphasizes the importance of diversity and inclusion in the workforce, his inspiration for starting the LeGrant Foundation, and what this means for the leaders of today and what action leaders of today should be taking.
6: The bottom line is diversity, and there's the operative, and inclusion, d um, is a business imperative. And it is those leaders who clearly get it, and I mean get it, not having the client drive it so much. And that's the tragedy of it all, where I have always said if you go back and Google many of the interviews I've had in the early 90s, in the early 2000, 2001, 2002, I said our industry, the communications industry, will only change when you have true leadership. Saying we need to diversify our workforce. Our workforce cannot be homogeneous. It's got to be more diversified. It cannot be monolithic. Um, in, in terms of, uh, in terms of how you look, in terms of um, your thinking, because you're going to bring a diverse set of new ideas to the table, because my experiences as an inner city kid growing in Philadelphia is going to be different from your experience growing up in the New England area. But that's a good thing to have us all in a room, and we can agree to disagree. But clients want brain trust that is going to bring a different set of creative and innovative thought to the table. Um, so for the for me to address some of the uh, the topics that were discussed, and I'm gonna use the term um, impatient, and this is a colleague and dear friend and a board member of the LaGrange Foundation to ride Neptune at Lenovo. The bottom line is we are not frustrated with the lack of diversity, we're impatient. And as a result of being impatient, now we're going to put people on notice that at the end of the day, if you don't do what we refer to as the right thing you will be at risk of losing business you will be at risk of gaining new business you will be at risk of survival (laughs) at the end of the day and if it takes leadership to do that i say more power to you
0: the next guest is jessica alvarez who's the ceo and co-founder of naya health and her episode was really interesting because she touches on the foundation of a lot of entrepreneurs which is solving a problem And she was able to solve a problem by creating a consumer health product, which then turned into a full-blown company. Um, And In this clip, she touches on her experience being a female entrepreneur, the process of raising money, and some of the
7: challenges that have have come with that. I think for me, my journey has been fairly positive. I think that we have struggled with... Uh, getting people to take our business seriously because we do have a product that is unique for women. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about the breast pump. So oftentimes when I'm pitching the business opportunity, a lot of distraction occurs and it's all around the breast pump. I think uh, individuals get very stuck on the breast pump. They don't understand it. They'll never need to use it. Um, is it really a need? And and they ask these questions because they just they don't know a lot about it and they never will. And so they oftentimes will rely on a sister, a wife, a friend, and they basically let these people around them you know, make a decision for them, uh, or at least heavily impact their decision-making process. And so you know, that in itself is a little bit frustrating for us because we feel like you know, it goes well beyond the pump. Um, The pump was just a really interesting way for us to insert ourselves in a family very early on and gain that trust. And so if you look at the entire business in the market that we're really targeting, it's a $30 billion market here in the U.S. alone. It's growing very uh, fast every year. We have a really interesting technology and really a a good platform to uh, insert ourselves into that that huge market. I feel like oftentimes because of the pump and the fact that there's anatomy involved and there's all these other things involved, people get distracted and they, they often move away from the fact that this is actually a really amazing business opportunity with a high percentage of of return uh, or instance return and so i think that that's something that you know we've encountered and it's been challenging you know i've shared a lot of my experiences with emily chang bloomberg um, follow-up article on the new yorker it's just products in general i think that women are leading or innovating on are just not getting the attention they need in order to further grow their business
0: the last episode features bob Johansson, who is a very impressive individual. He's a distinguished fellow of the Institute for the Future, a multi-time author, and just overall fascinating. He touched on a variety of topics in regards to the future, which spanned the roles of data, AI, screen time, um, education in society today, our diets, and uh, what we can do to prepare for the future. Um, And in this next clip, he, talks about his newest book, The New Leadership Literacies, where he gives an overview of competencies and practices leaders will need in the VUCA world in 10 years. And the VUCA world is what he refers to as volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous.
8: And what I realized is skills aren't enough to thrive in the VUCA world. You really need literacies, which are, I'm kind of coining a word there. It's not the usual use of the word literacy. It means as a practice or a discipline or even a worldview that includes skills or includes competencies. But it's really much more. It's a literacy. So the core literacy is the ability to look 10 years ahead and then work backwards. So it's really future back strategy instead of starting from the present and kind of inching your way out. Because in a VUCA world, that just doesn't work very well. It's too much noise in the present. So in the digital space, for example, if you want to understand the future of digital, don't go to CES and don't read Wired Magazine. I mean, those are both good for certain things, but not for understanding the future because there's too much noise. But if you leap 10 years out and work backwards, that works much better. Then, off that core literacy, there's what I call voluntary fear exposure, which is basically gaming and gameful engagement. Um, There's leading what I call shape-shifting organizations, which are the organization of the future, which have no center, grow from the edges, hierarchies come and go, can't be controlled, but can be guided. And, And the military knows how to do this better than the rest of us, especially through special forces and their their concepts of commander's intent or mission command or flexive command and then in these shape-shifting organizations you've got to be better when you're not there physically than when you are so it's being there without being there and finally you've got to be super healthy so it's you know, many leaders today are just kind of marginally healthy, and it's kind of nice if you have it. But 10 years from now, you're going to have to be super healthy. And I mean, physically, I mean, mentally, and I mean, even spiritually, although not necessarily religiously, but to be grounded in the face of the VUCA world.
0: Well, that was a fun walk down memory lane for me, and I hope it was for you as well. If you have anyone you would like to nominate to be a guest on the show, any ideas or feedback, we'd love to hear it. You can reach out to me at bclaws at w2ogroup.com or Aaron at astrout at w2ogroup.com. Thank you for tuning in. Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2ogroup.com slash what to know.